awesome gift of his presence. We're so grateful, Lord, for all you do, but we want to be more grateful for who you are, and we thank you now that as we worship you, we come to give you what for us is like that alabaster flask of ointment that the woman came and anointed you with in those crucial moments as you were making your way to the cross on our behalf. Lord, today we see the wording in the Gospel of John. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Today, we want to thank you for inviting each of us, beckoning and calling us, drawing us by the mighty power of your Holy Spirit to be a people who long to give you our very best with grateful praise for all that you do and even higher and more fully developed praise for who you are. We want to give you our hearts and we want to know you, Lord. Thank you today for the gift of the fellowship of the body of Christ, for the brother and sister in Christ on our left and on our right, behind us and before us. Give us insight, Lord, to know what we can do, how we can be equipped, how we can be prepared to be cultivators of that quality of life and care, companionship and compassion in the body of Christ that you give to us through your unfailing love. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before we're seated, would you turn around and greet three people? Just give them a welcome today from your heart, and we welcome each of you that are joining us in Facebook Live to share in this time together. Thank you, Josiah. Praise God. It's a real blessing to, to see you guys. And uh, while the sun is shining so beautifully brightly and um, the sunshine of God's love sparkles even brighter for our boys and girls, for Explorers and uh, Pathfinders class, they can now go to their time together down the hall. We know they need their time, and uh, welcome each of you that are guests today. Thank you for visiting. Thank you, Yousef and Anise, for serving so beautifully in Cafe Liberty. For each of you that uh, share in that mission, um, it's 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 part of what we pray each of our each of us can be a part of cultivating. And these connections, though they may seem brief in the Sunday morning time. We want them to be a springboard for even much, much more. Open your Bible today to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Today we, we remember as we think about what it means to come to know Jesus, that there are encounters with the Lord that are part of his design for our life. And as we consider 
One of the most familiar encounters that we know of in the scriptures, we meet that familiar character Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and we see in that encounter with Jesus that a vital truth that is expressed through this conversation becomes a defining issue in the way that Jesus gives each of us the gift of faith, the ability to trust and to believe. In the Gospel of John, the word believe occurs 98 times in 21 chapters. It becomes, in a sense, the word believe, believing and believe. The verb form is what John uses, strikingly, rarely using the noun form of faith, more often the verb form, pistuo, meaning a a, a persuasion, a, a strong inner persuasion of the heart. And when we think of the way that the gospel writer employs this term, it becomes, in a sense, a kind of a golden thread that weaves its way through the entire Gospel of John. When we meet Nicodemus in this familiar encounter with the Lord, we see that not only does does this truth of, of believing become highlighted, but it becomes sharply defined and focused on that which only Jesus Christ can do in the heart and soul of an individual. In fact, that work is so mighty that in the initial part of the conversation, it leaves Nicodemus a very wise, seasoned, experienced, intelligent leader, baffled by the very idea that Jesus presents to him. Now, you you can sense where I'm going with that because you know the story. But when we read it again, we, we really get an opportunity here to see one of the things that is easy for us to forget in our time, and it is vital for our time in some very new and striking ways as followers of the Lord in a culture that is so unfamiliar with the things of God. So one of the things I want to do with you for a few moments is to trace a bit in the way that we receive this familiar story, a beautiful pattern that helps us recognize not only why John recorded this conversation, but the significance of the letter or of the epistle, of the gospel itself, the entire book of John, in the culture that he lived in and the culture that he wrote in. And the reason for that is that John in the third chapter is giving to us what I think of as the mighty miracle within you from which God brings the things we most vitally need in our Christian life. So I want to ask you to think with me in this uh, part of Encounters with Jesus about the mighty miracle of the new birth. And would you read, I'm reading from the ESV in uh, John chapter 3, where we read in verse 1, 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If we pause in the conversation there for a moment, we, we know clearly that uh, what we have here is, is a stunning clash of language and understanding that is designed by God to jolt Nicodemus out of his deeply familiar ruts of thinking and introduce him to something which is as vibrant and powerful and relevant in your life and mine today as it was in that midnight conversation. Because what he is about to say and explain is not only about the initial experience of the new birth, but the continuing power of the new birth in every redeemed child of God's life. And Nicodemus' perplexity that we find there in that fourth verse is almost humorously familiar to us. We, we can see him engaging initially with the very notion that... Um, there could be something like a new birth, a birthing anew. And it is in that perplexity that Jesus injects the facts about the unseen realm of the kingdom of God that have to intersect Nicodemus' world in a way that Nicodemus will then be prepared to respond to God. Now, as much as we all, if we've grown up in congregations where the truth about coming to Christ and experiencing the new birth has been faithfully proclaimed and, and presented in many different ways, we might be tempted to, to just uh, kind of gloss over the conversation sometimes because there is a tendency that we have to think, I've, I've been there, I've done that, I've experienced that, it's real to me, and, and even at our best, even if we say that's wonderful and I'm grateful for it, and yet there is a tendency to lose the uh, value, this jolt that Jesus gives Nicodemus. He's jolting him not only because his religious tradition obviously keeps him in a certain frame of mind, Nicodemus, but he also jolts him because he's actually having this conversation with Nicodemus in a way that opens an avenue for each of us to realize that God is bringing his kingdom actively into our lives, and it is just as powerful as this stunning concept 
of somebody being born a second time. So what we find then is the explanation in verse 6 that uses a contrasting imagery that is part of a pattern in the Gospel of John, and that is the contrast between the realm of human familiar experience, which is what Nicodemus is, is completely wrapped up in, that realm of familiar human experience in verse 6 would be categorized under the phrase, the flesh. And in this case, the realm of God's eternal kingdom intersecting our lives and bringing to us that which only he can do and has done through the Lord Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and then focuses us on a fact that has daily relevance in giving us confidence, peace, joy, assurance, and motivation to love and to serve him. So this ongoing contrast we might think of is in the language of John, the word flesh here, by the way, in verse means is a distinctive meaning apart from in contrast to how the Apostle Paul uses it. When the Apostle Paul uses the term the flesh, for example, in Romans 6, he's referring to the sinful nature of the human being specifically. We might say that they're contained within each other, uh, but John's reference is a more broad sense of just the totality of human experience. And when we look at it this way, we understand that in John's writing, the contrast between flesh and spirit here gives us an opportunity to see why the good news of Jesus Christ not only is relevant, but needs to be freshly applied in the church and in our lives in all kinds of circumstances. We may not feel that we're as much in darkness as certainly Nicodemus was to these truths, but we can be in our own kind of darkness. Do you understand what I mean? We can, be, we can have our own kind of familiar territory that we're used to traveling in and thinking. And, and the Lord comes to us and he brings a, a, a jolt, a, a kind of an awakening. So I want to read that text in verse 6 and 7 before we touch on a little bit more about John's uh, approach here. Look at verse 6 and 7 in your Bible, John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, for Nicodemus, Jesus is introducing the fact that his perplexity about a man being born again is simply because he doesn't understand there is a way in which God is going to wrap his mighty grace and his omnipotent power around a human being, and that person is going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's power is going to do something new in his human spirit. And we'll see that again in a moment. But now look at verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must, say it with me, you must be born again. Would you read that last part of verse 7 aloud with me? You must be born again. Now, I, I told you that I, I see a kind of a banner over this time in the life of our church as a a time for us to think about, um, in a sense, recapturing or we might say um, 
understanding in a new way uh, the elements of our life as a worshiping congregation um, based on four categories from the book of Acts. And these categories are the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, now these clearly are categories that are quite broad, obviously. There's so much to each of those if you broke those down. And, and in, in thinking of this between now and Thanksgiving, I'm thinking one of the things that is not only rewarding and enriching, but um, surprisingly relevant to the moment that we're living in and as our, in our culture is to come back to this, what sounds like a fairly archaic phrase, I'm sure to many people, apostles' doctrine. That sounds very archaic, almost academic. But there's, there's embedded within that the, 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 fr- the phrase in the Greek, the apostolic teaching. We might say it's a kind of a wraparound concept to the total way that the good news of Jesus Christ becomes embodied and expressed and articulated and developed in the discipling of every child of God in his or her generation so that the church becomes the vehicle of an active, dynamic experience of these life-giving truths coming into the hearts of real people, bringing transformation, encouragement, comfort, and preparation for what God has in store for the use of their gifts and all of the other things that we think about when we think about New Testament New Testament church life, the beautiful imagery that that can bring to us. So again, four categories in Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and of prayers. In each one of them, there's a whole lot contained. What I find striking then, though, is we apply that here to the third chapter of the Gospel of John, is that in John's experience we kind of get a, a bit of a, uh, of a window into why this phrase from Acts 2.42 is so, so relevant to our time. Now, first we have to think about his time to think about our time. Okay, so we're going to do that for a few moments and think about it. Now, first of all, I want to touch on his emphases and then think about the, the vast expanse of his experience. When we read the Gospel of John sometimes, we can forget how... The development of the writer himself is also part of God's eternal plan for the inerrancy of Scripture. We know that from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, where the Bible says that all Scripture is, um, that, that holy vessels were used of God, moved upon, and the, the Greek there means carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along, that is, the human writers who themselves were fallible human beings, and yet they were used by the, by the Holy Spirit in various ways to carry along the truth that they were assigned to inscribe. And when we pair up 2 Peter 1.20 with 2 Timothy 3.16, we know the, the picture is even more richly understood that God is breathing into this. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. The Greek term means a literal exhaling of God into the scripture. And then 2 Peter 1.20 tells us more about how that interacted with the human vessel. Now I sell that because when you think about John, it's easy for us to forget 
why the Gospel of John varies in some distinctives that in the Matthew, Mark, Luke accounts of the Lord Jesus have a slightly different emphasis. And, and one person compared this, if you think about the four Gospels, to somebody trying to take a photograph of the Concord jet. Uh, that sleek, uh, almost stealthy-looking Concorde jet that uh, so famously uh, broke new barriers in terms of speed and, 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 and uh, aeronautic reach back in the, what, late teens, 1970s or early 80s when it finally came online. And talk about a photograph of the Concorde, and it would be if you were trying to photograph the Concorde jet, you would if you tried to, a photograph from above it, you would have one Im impression. If you tried to photograph it, straight on from the, from the nose back, you have a different impression. Though it's not a perfect analogy, it helps us realize that there are some different distinctives in these Gospels. Now, what I want to ask you to think about here, first of all, is um, that in John's experience, what we have is, <laughs> um, my, uh, my thumb hits it and then I've got a delay. In John's vast, expensive cultural cross-cultural ministry, we forget how long John lived, for one thing, just a very simple fact, but we also forget that in the shaping of this human vessel for the writing of the gospel, and then the writing of three epistles, and then the writing of the apocalypse, that God, like he does in so many other ways that are beyond our comprehension, God prepares his vessel. And in the case of John, when we read a familiar encounter like Nicodemus and Jesus, it's, it's, it would be helpful sometimes, I think, if we could place ourselves in, a, in an empty room, maybe a sparsely furnished room, with nothing else on the table, with no technology, with no um, distractions, with, with no files and paperwork, with no one talking in our ear on a phone, but just a, a, a table, a picture for yourself, a, a, a blank table with a sparsely populated room, or maybe on a beautiful day like this, and you spread out before you maybe the entire Gospel of John, and you, without any distraction or interruption, you sat and read from John 1 through John 21 in one setting. You would get a very different impression than often what we get when we just dip into it and, and grab certain parts of the Bible. And the reason I say that is that this entire Gospel contains so many incredible marks of literary artistry that that it it is mind-boggling to think of someone who was in their early years just a fisherman no doubt a good businessman because they took those catches of fish down that 85 or so mile journey down to Jerusalem and they sold the fish in Jerusalem and in other parts of their native land but Many people would just picture John and James. We, we have this picture of John and James and Andrew and Simon Peter and all of them and, and just as kind of rough, around the edges, burly fishermen. And that is how they started. But in the lifespan of John, God does something unique with this writer that helps us engage as to how even the story of Nicodemus crosses a cultural barrier and shows us that the good news of Jesus Christ is encountering you and me in our cultural setting. Now, here's the reason that I, I say that. 
in John's vast cross-cultural ministry, what is really striking is that he lived longer than the other apostles, obviously. He outlived, and many of those whose pen was used for the earlier documents died and were martyred before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. So we have the Apostle Paul martyred in about 67 AD. We have the Apostle Peter martyred in 66 or 67 AD. And we have other apostles whose, whose ministry for the witness of the resurrection of Jesus took them to Thomas to India and, and Barnabas uh, and all of the others uh, to other parts of, of the known world. Now we have John who is, who is out, not only outliving them, but his breadth of experience in life is often totally ignored in understanding how beautifully his words conveyed the timelessness of the gospel to us. And I think of this like, we think of it this way, not only did he live from about the time Jesus called him when he was, say, 17 or 18, possibly, until most likely into his 70s. It's even possible longer before he finally died. And in, these, and in those intervening years, not only does he live a long time, but his breadth of experience is fascinating. Think about it. Jesus assigned John, on the, while he was dying on the cross, the care of his own mother, Mary. No doubt he cared for her until she passed. Many people believe she went on to Ephesus with John before we have no historical record of when she died, but that he would have cared for her until her last days. In, in the writing of the Gospel of John, he's in an entirely different culture than he grew up in. He's in the Greek cosmopolitan culture now, and he, over years, has become a scholar of immense intellectual depth, as well as an incredibly gifted writer, a guy who started out as a fisherman. In the vast cross-cultural ministry of John, we can detect from his writings not only that he had experienced radical change and even traveled farther than most people in his that he grew up with would have ever traveled, but we see the marks by the mighty wisdom of God of shaping in John through all those experiences that became a part of their relationship the distinctive emphases that for this gospel help us understand what was really taking place here. So I, I want to ask you to think about this in this way, and maybe even page back in your gospel of John, to John chapter 1, verse 14. And there we see um, that one of the great emphases in the gospel of John is eternal life, whereas the synoptic gospel writers often were uh, their phrasing would be about the kingdom of God. It's the same, but the distinctives here are, are important. Eternal life is in focus throughout the Gospel of John. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For the world in which we're given the Gospel, to understand what Nicodemus had to be jolted into understanding is that what you see, that car in your driveway, that bank account, that job, that highway, that relationship, that is temporal. What is eternal is of far greater significance. 
So eternal life is in focus. The deity of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John is emphasized in so many different ways. The seven I am's are classic, of course, but also if I if you turn to John 1 14, begin at verse 12, we read where he says, almost as a foreshadowing of what happens with Nicodemus, he came unto his own, and his own received his if not, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. Children born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Now for a moment, pair up John 1.13 and John 1.14 for a moment. Look at them in your own Bible and think about this. John 1.13 is talking about what Nicodemus needed to see. John 1.13 is talking about this powerful fact. You must be born again. And in that 13th verse of John 1, we see the miracle, the mighty miracle that a person can have, oh, not only a new beginning. We hear a new beginning sometimes, even in, in, in our lives in a more of a social way. Somebody's getting a new start. They're turning over a new leaf. They're getting a new beginning. But when the Bible talks about the new birth, it's far more profound than that. It's not just a new beginning. It's a new person. God's created something that didn't exist before. <laughs> and why? Okay, now the 14th verse, because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The word dwelt, circle that in your Bible in that 14th verse, and notice the word dwelt translates a Greek word, stene, that is the root from which we get the Greek word for tent or tabernacle. A temporary dwelling. And in the language of, of John 1.14, God gives us this clear, unmistakable connection between being born again, in verse 13, what Nicodemus needed to learn, okay? Being born again and the reason we can have this new life. Why? Because the eternal word... The Word, the uncreated Word, the Word who existed before all things that you can see, the Logos of God, the Word, He became human. He embodied that very thing we said when we saw that John uses flesh and spirit again in the distinctive way. The totality of human experience is flesh in these writings the spirit has to do with the totality of the realm of God, the realm of which in which the creator designs his plan. And the word became human. Now this brought to the culture John was writing in also a very direct confrontation to a, a false concept. The Greek culture often talked about um, the difference of flesh and spirit, but they implied, they implied that flesh was detached from some distant deity and that or series of deities and that flesh was absolutely of no lasting value that flesh was often uh, thought of as corruption and 
and, and evil and the source of all that is evil. And here the gospel writer brings the truth that the eternal word of God became human. In that very act, he elevated the value of every individual human soul. Something that the Greeks would have scratched their head about, just like Nicodemus scratched his head about the biological perplexity of a new birth. So what we find is, in John 1.14, the gospel writer tells us why Christ came to bring us this new birth. Why? Why? Well, we might say, well, pastor, you know why. Of course, because I want to go to heaven when I die. Of course. Well, that's, that's part of the wonderful package. Amen. To be absent from the body for a redeemed child of God, to be present with the Lord. But that wasn't the primary, the first goal. The first goal was what he said in throughout scripture in many different places, I want to dwell among them. Exodus 25, 8, where he references this early tent, this tabernacle, he says, thank you, he says, make, to Moses, make for, make for yourselves a tabernacle, a dwelling place. Why? This is priceless. Exodus 25, 8, anticipates John 1.14. Why does God want a tabernacle? That I might dwell among them. That I might dwell. Can you imagine this? You're sitting in that sparsely populated room. You're reading the Gospel of John. You're exposing yourself to the vast, rich, exquisite detail of this amazing Gospel. And something in your mind, you said, oh, I, I know that. I heard that when I was in Sunday school. I heard that a long time ago. But when you sit down and read it quietly, without technology, without distractions, without phone calls, without, and you read it, you find yourself encountering this fact. Almighty God wanted to dwell with us. It's a relational fact. And, and so... He tabernacled, when Jesus came, he tabernacled among us. And then flip back over to chapter 3, and then we see that so when Jesus encounters Nicodemus, he is a Pharisee, he's a ruler among the Jews, and clearly he's a man stirred with a very deep spiritual hunger. What I hope we could see as we, as we conclude this would be the fact that this deep spiritual hunger in a ruler among the Jews is another exhibit, we might say, that we should put alongside the exhibit I brought you last Sunday about Zacchaeus. Two men who couldn't be more different in their life responsibility in their personality, probably. I can't imagine Nicodemus, for example. You know, last week I got carried away and I ran up there <laughs> like, like Nick Zacchaeus looking over the tree. I can't quite picture Nicodemus doing that. <laughs> I can picture Nicodemus more like, hmm, you know. Totally different personality, 
totally different uh, occupation and totally different esteem or or uh, reputation among the people. <laughs> Zacchaeus, we saw last week, scorned, despised. In fact, when Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost, that was a that was a bombshell for a lot of people who've been watching these tax collectors rip people off for a long time. And they're saying, wait a minute. Not only did he see Zacchaeus in the tree, but he asked to go into his house and sat down and broke bread with his Zacchaeus. And we saw that Jesus was singling out the eternal value of every individual soul. But now think Nicodemus. It's no less true for him. And he's stirred with that deep spiritual hunger. And just before we close, I want to ask you to think about why it was that, and, and, and we think about his experience, what it was that captivated his attention. And it's interesting that it's similar to Zacchaeus in that he had heard, Zacchaeus we saw had heard but hadn't yet seen, in Nicodemus' case, he'd actually witnessed some of this and was absolutely floored. Here's how he put it in John 3, 2. You have your Bible open still. He says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. For Nicodemus, we see one of the distinctives in the Gospel of John is, again, sort of like we might say overlapping circles on a if I had a marker board here, we could draw two circles. You interface the circles. The emphasis is a little different. They're talking about the same thing. Gospel writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke referred to them as miracles, wonders. John uses the word sign, and the Greek expression implies seeing through the miracle. That is, John takes us to the place of not only remarkably seeing what Christ did, but what that sign, miracle, shows us about him. And Nicodemus, in that more contemplative and, and probably quite uh, well-trained in the Jewish customs and laws and so forth, he would have looked at it and something would have prodded a memory. Now, I don't know that this is the scripture, but it could very well have been that Nicodemus could have remembered what Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 says, where the Bible says God sent Isaiah and his sons to be signs and symbols among them that they might turn to me. Was it that type of verse that came to Nicodemus? Was he realizing these are signs? What do these signs say? You ever been on a dark highway or in the fog? Your light? You turn your brights on, you see a sign up there, you know if you need to know that. But you can't make out the lettering yet. You're, you, need to, you need your brights on, you need a little closer before you see that sign indicating the exit ramp. Nicodemus saw in the fog signs. The signs. It's like... It's like just that first, even just that first one would be a good example. Just that first one. That when news came of that wedding in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus had been invited just as a guest with his disciples, and they come to that wedding, 
And they're out of the wine that is so vital to the way they celebrated. And the people come to Mary and they say, would you appeal to Jesus that we're out of wine? And Jesus says at first, what does this have to do with me? Water, I mean wine, what, why is that of a high priority? And then Jesus responds to his mother's appeal in a very, very touching and poignant expression that shows us that when she goes to say, whatever he says to you, do it. And in acting in simple faith on the word of the Lord Jesus, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we beheld his glory. And John remarks at the end of that, that little episode in John 2.11, he remarks, this first sign Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. It's like a hint that God will take that which is natural, water H2O, so important to our lives, so plentiful, so much a source of great need in our world and how water is managed, all those things. But God takes a natural substance. He says, now take that which is natural to the servants, begin to pour it out. But at the word of Jesus, that which was only natural now becomes a vehicle of the display of God's glory. That water is turned into wine, giving to the wedding guests a taste of something they could not have even understood was really not just a taste of great wine, but a foretaste of the glory that has just been quietly, deftly, almost inobtrusively displayed. And yet John's comment is, this sign was the first of that blaze of his glory. Nicodemus is there with Jesus. And I think that what Jesus is aiming at in that conversation can simply be summed up in the way he put it in that fifth verse, except you be born again, you will not enter the kingdom. He said both see the kingdom and enter the kingdom. And what I want to suggest to you as we go today, that that mighty miracle of God is within you. And the mighty miracle is that simply, just like those servants pouring natural water at the word of Jesus, and that natural water into those clay vessels becomes life-nourishing wine. So, at the word of Jesus, you take your natural life, and you can do it again today, because the new birth is, though the initiation of it is coming to Christ as a sinner, yes, but the continuation of it is to know that being born again means God didn't just start something new. He didn't just turn over a new chapter. He didn't just turn over a new leaf. No, he created a new you. He created a new you. And in that creation, those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but literally, he says, being born again with the word of the living God dwelling in you means 
that now you are walking with God and the Holy Spirit is powerfully surging in your life to bring you more and more into a relationship of dwelling with him. Let's pray, and I want to, as we pray, ask that you might do something that may feel a little unusual, but I think it's timely, and that is, I can remember, I shared part of my testimony with you a few weeks back, I can remember the the day I got saved, I can remember vividly, 1967, I'll never forget, that's a long time ago, I, I came to Christ in 1967. Five years later, after a very tumultuous middle school experience as a kid, I was bankrupt, broken, hurting, somewhat confused. Through a timely bringing of the word of God into my soul, I asked for the Lord Jesus to powerfully work in me and to not only bring that restoration, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That was a part of a, a dynamic working in my life. But here's what I've found. I've found that 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 water into wine factor is as relevant on your worst Tuesday afternoon as it was in the most moving experience you've ever had. Today, if you would simply say with me, I accept Jesus' word for me. I accept Jesus' word for me that he wants to dwell with me in a lively and dynamic way. Would you lift your hand right now? I want to accept Jesus' now word for me, the now word, the living word, and I receive into my heart that living as a, in the miracle of the new birth means that the Holy Spirit is dynamically working and that, yes, I'm a new person in Christ. I am new in him. Thank you, Lord, for making that real for us. But more than that, embed within us, Lord, the timeless power of this good news that God so loved the world. Every single human individual has infinite worth in the eyes of God. And he demonstrated by giving in sacrificial love his only begotten son. 